over souls, bearing in depths of my steps, left the funny skulls, my timberlimbs heavy too loud. Good morning, this is Ellie Newman, and you're listening to It's Relationship. My guest today is Louise Steinman. Louise is an author, author of The Crooked Mirror, and um, an earlier book, The Souvenir, and she is the literary curator with Aloud in Los Angeles. Welcome, Louise. Thank, Thank you, you for Ellie. joining me. It's great to have you. I, I won't say here because Louise is actually, we're doing a Skype call and Louise is in Los Angeles where she had to turn on the air conditioner, so it's clearly much warmer there. We're a little cold here these last few days. I'm jealous. I'm jealous. So, Louise, I want to start with what first led you or drew you to writing. Was that something that you were interested in from childhood or did that come later? It's funny. I just found a... Uh, the first journal I kept when I was eight on my first trip to New York, it's really, it's really, it's really funny. But yeah, I think I always was drawn to um, write things down. I loved correspondence. Um, I remember writing to my grandmother, and I think I, I remember telling my mother, what, Little Women was my favorite book as a, as a child. So yeah, I loved to read, and I loved to write. Um, I didn't know what that would, you know, mean, but yes, it was, it was an early love. And so did you literally just refine the journal and did you read through it? Were you amazed? But I'm trying to consolidate boxes of letters and journals. And uh, yeah, I was actually um, wanting to write a piece about my father coming here from New York uh, in 1941. So it's, it's funny to find this little journal because it's my first trip to New York as an, as an eight-year-old. So I was really delighted to uh, have my first experience in New York. So yeah, and I love I love you know I love the journal form. I you know it kind of it's part I would say connected to the memoir form, and I love the voice that people find in in, in letters, which was something that really informed um, my memoir, the suit the souvenir. And do you write letters still? I was thinking about when you said you were you were look, going through and looking for correspondence. Growing up in that generation with correspondence, actual physical correspondence, I know I always. I'm thinking about that, sort of the future. Will there be anything left, you know? And, and having an actual physical letter, I still like to read books. I want to turn the pages. I want to feel it. But so much of your life, which the, the listeners will understand more later, has been influenced and, and so greatly impacted by letters. How do you feel just about correspondence itself? I, I think that's a great question, Ellie. It's something I do think about a lot. I... Um... I was recently in an exhibition in New York where a friend sent correspondences back to friends from 20 years and asked us to make uh, an artwork or a written piece out of it. And I was so moved by this exhibition, which was at Westbeth, the artist building in New York, because you could just feel the kind of passion and sense of attention in, you know, in these pieces. And, and as he said in his introduction to the show, I mean, when we when we would write a letter to someone, it was really you would be taking time. It's like a meditation. You are focusing on that other human being, and to some extent, we do that in emails. But they're so truncated, and of course, the preservation is is sketchy. You know, we're not going to have trunks trunks of emails to go through. And there's such a, I think historians um, worry about this a lot because it's it's really primary. Um, documentation that that we're going to be missing. If you think about how far back that goes of finding actual tablets or physical writing on the the side of a a cave, we we aren't going to be missing a a lot of that. 
We we are, even though it, it's ironic because we're so, you know, we're so obsessed with with documentation these days, self documentation. You know, people's taking pictures of themselves and friends, but the digital form is 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 more fragile, I think, than people realize. Absolutely, absolutely. So before we jump into your writing in in more depth, I want to just understand a little bit about your work as a literary curator with Aloud. What is Aloud? I I just briefly checked it on the website. It looks incredibly amazing. Well, thank you. I, I founded it, um, it's been hard to believe, 22 years now, but in 1993, the uh, Los Angeles Public Library reopened after a series of disastrous arson fires, and there's a small uh, foundation there. The Library Foundation wanted to provide uh, public programs of some kind for the library, and I was its first director, cultural programs director, and of course nobody knew what those public programs would look like. We didn't know how we would attract people to come downtown, which was kind of sketchy in those days, but it's been building, and now we produce about 70 free public programs a year. We start our fall season this week with Salman Rushdie and Hector Tobar. We have Supreme Court Justice Breyer coming this month, um, Patty Smith's coming, so it's it's a great honor and a privilege, and I, I, I really think of it as... Um, a place where we practice civic discourse. This is what's, in a sense, most interesting to me. I mean, in this age where everyone's virtually connected to everyone, we, we still need a place where we actually can learn to talk about things in public with other people that we don't always agree with. And um, it's it's really quite exhilarating. So uh, when Cornell West walked into... Um, the space of the library where we usually do these programs, he said, this is sanctified space. And I thought, yeah, really, it really is. I, I and, think of and it what a, a diverse lineup you have, just naming those few names, that you really are connecting with people on all different levels, in arts, in politics, in law. How did you decide originally that, that sort of when you began, who, who you would draw in first or how you would decide who to choose? Well, I think I, it, it was a lot of trial and error, to, to be honest. I mean, I just found the program for one of the first programs we did, which was called um, Breaking Bread, Food and Community in California, um, which was a series on cooking and food as a way to bring people together. And it's, it's interesting because now there's a huge exhibit um, at the Central Library um, drawn from the library's menu collection, which is the largest menu collection west of the Mississippi, and it's a it's an exhibition about food justice. It's brought people. We have hundreds of people coming in, you know, every day to look at this exhibit, um, to write their own favorite men menu, to look at what what food tells us about the social history of our city. So, um, I tried that, um, and I'm an interdisciplinarian by training. That's my background. So. Uh, I think it's important. I'm interested in how science, you know, how we can be conversant about um, what's going on in science. And I like to bring poets together with scientists. And, you know, I think I think since the library contains every single subject, you know, under the sun, that it's fair game for us to present, you know, on subjects as diverse as gaming or um, racial politics or um, social history. All of those things are 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 open for discussion. And have you seen in the last 20 years since you began, have you seen the community that you are building within that sanctified space generate outward? Do, do you notice? I, say it, I would say people tell me about relationships made in that space. I've um, commissioned collaborations which have then gone on. Sometimes bringing people in the community together will 
um, engender another uh, series of work that's true for musicians and dancers. Um, but also I noticed that um, people have gotten better at discourse. I would say the level of questions is, is very good. And this is open to everyone. So we have um, sometimes homeless people sitting next to downtown corporate lawyers. Um, it's, it's a real mix. It's a truly democratic space. And I was, I was remembering one year, I think the um, presidential debates came on uh, during one night during Aloud. So we all watched it together. And I remember someone who was homeless saying to me, she said, this really makes me feel like I live in a democracy. And that made me, that made me really happy. I don't know if you have to have Trump this year. You'll be blending everything in one. Politics, performer, <laughs> buffoon. <laughs> oh, my God. So let's start talking a little bit about your writing. Um, how did you come to write your first book, The Souvenir? Did you think, I'm going to write a book and, and set out to find a topic, or did the topic find you? Well, surprise, actually, The Souvenir is my second book. The first book, which is um, the no is called The Knowing Body. It's the artist, a storyteller, and contemporary performance. And I have a background in theater and dance. That was my first love. And I was also a dance critic. So I had an opportunity uh, with Shambhala Books, um, asked, wanted to do a book on contemporary dance and performance. So that was really in a way to sum up a, a decade or a decade and a half of work. I also say that, I, that I, write, I wrote that book because my father always wondered what the hell his daughter was doing, you know, crawling around on the floor of a dance studio. And it, it's, it's five essays on performance, and it's really so that anyone at any level of understanding, I think, about dance or performance can have a handle on looking at different kinds of performance. So there's an essay on the body is home. There's an essay on improvisation. Uh, called the unforeseen. There's one, uh, the unexpected. There's one on um, images called the foreseen. There's one on storytelling, and I, this whole idea of where storytelling comes from. So I was very interested in that. So I, in a way, it is a lead up to the first book, but it was a way to try and understand what I myself and my contemporaries had been doing. It's interesting because my daughter was just talking yesterday at lunch in depth with my husband about how could dance not be a sport in the Olympics when some of these other sports, you know, quotes, air quotes on both sides are. That's interesting. That's, that's dance is, is competition. I guess that's a, that's beyond my understanding. That's a whole, whole different true. realm. I think it's based on reality TV, dance moms, maybe. Right. It's infiltrating. Right. Well, I just look at the Ed Sullivan show and say, could you get a job doing that? And I go like, no, dance. <laughs> Absolutely. So that starts to tell us something about your father and, and your relationship with your father. And so we can segue into your second book. Yes, and the, and the other segue is that the dance pieces that I was making, which were really more theater um, than dance, often used family story. In fact, um, one piece was um, called Lens Passage, used my father's voice, this patriarchal voice in the piece as it took you through this story. Um, so I was, I was always interested in those family stories, in documenting um, their actual voices. And so after my father died uh, in 1990, actually, both my parents passed away the same year. The one subject in our very liberal uh, household, you know, we could talk about anything, was do not talk to your father about the war. Don't ask your father about the war. And I knew he was a vet, but, you know, it was just a given so I found after he passed away in cleaning out uh, my parents' house, about, it was a little ammo box, actually, it's 
it's not sitting down below here, um, over five, just about 500 letters that he wrote to my mother from the Pacific during the war. And it was just, um, just a shocker because my dad was a pharmacist. He was um, not a man of, you know, easy, you know, he didn't go on with many words, but these these he was very practical, but these letters from my young father were so poetic and so lyrical and so emotional. It was kind of like meeting him for the first time. And Louise, had you been looking for something when you found the letters? I mean, were you searching for some connection, or or did you just come upon them? And what was that like to come upon that? Well, it it wasn't exactly random. I mean, we were cleaning out this condo, um, but I had been kind of troubled by the fact that, and it took us a long time, that I couldn't dream of my father um, after he died. And and then I did have this kind of devastating dream where I walked into a pharmacy, and there he was, and he was alive, and he was he was really angry at me because I thought he was dead, and he said, you're not listening. Oh, which was something he used to say to me. Uh, <laughs> it was a familiar phrase. Yeah, and and uh, pre- pretty much a couple days later, I found the box with the letters. So it really felt like, pay attention. You know, this is something you need to look at. And um, so there they were. And what 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 to do with them next was the big question. I mean, and, I was it was I was overwhelmed. And how much did you know about World War II at that point and the relationship between? the Jewish population and the Catholic population in Poland or Poland itself. I know you grew up in Culver City and you said you weren't, you hadn't spoken about the war at home. Um, I, I heard in your lecture, you said, you know, no tea kettles and no Asian food. So, How, so beyond that, here's an interesting distinction. So growing up in a, in a Jewish post-war household, I mean, I was, I was aware of the, of the Holocaust from an early age. I was aware of the European theater, the Pacific, the Pacific war was something since it was my father had this direct experience with it um, was more muted. So I didn't know specifically what had happened to family members in Poland, but the books kind of are are in that sequence. I think that the Pacific War came first because I found these letters, and I knew very very little about the history of the U.S. in the Pacific and how racist a war it was on both sides because there were. There were phrases in my father's letters like, um, those nips don't give up, so we have to kill them all. And my father was a very gentle man, and I was shocked. And I started reading. Um, so, so often, and this was true of, of both of my books, the process of writing the book was a, was a way to learn about this subject of history. And what I try to do in both of these memoirs is to take the reader through this process of learning about a subject. I mean, I'm I'm not an academic, I'm not a professional historian, I have a deep love of history, but how do we find our way and then how how can I take you on this journey in a way that's accessible but that you will actually be learning some of the, you know, I can share with you some of those discoveries about that history. And I think a a lot of people that may know sort of the general history of the war haven't dug as deeply as you have, don't really realize the state of America at that time and and how much racism and the idea of uh, superiority um, was coming out of our universities as well as what was happening in Germany and that we didn't get into the war based on our disgust with the prejudice-based killings that were happening. That's certainly true in terms of our attitudes um, towards the Japanese and as 
John Dower, who was kind of a mentor on this book, the great historian of the Pacific War, said, you know, it's, it was a war without mercy, and it was a war with great racism on both sides. So the Japanese were putting out these images, you know, of the Yankees, you know, as who were going to come and rape and pillage their, their, their home country. And, you know, we would picture the Japanese as, as uh, you know, these horrible racist stereotypes. So what I learned, too, was that my father was in a, a battle that lasted... 165 um, consecutive days, which which would tip anyone over the edge. So he was really he really suffered from um, PTSD, which didn't have that name then, of course. So I found along with my with my father's letters, there was one souvenir tucked in a particular envelope, which was uh, a, a folded up in eighths. It was a silk uh, piece of silk, and it was a Japanese flag, which had beautiful calligraphy on it, the rising sun, and what looked like speckles of blood. So what I finally found out after I stopped being repelled by the flag was that this flag contained the name of a Japanese soldier. So that was another sort of message. What do, what do I do with this? Those, those were the questions. And so the earlier book, The Souvenir, that was basically about your father's military experience. Yeah, and it was really what what war, I guess one of the questions I was asking was, how was trauma transmitted through the generations? How did my father's experience in the Pacific War influence the way I grew up, influence the life of my family? And when the book came out, um, which was right after 9-11, I did a lot of speaking on college campuses, and I um, and, in the, and in the two years after that, I, I talked with a lot of people coming back from our, our wars and a lot of young people eager to go. So it was kind of a focal point for a discussion about, you know, what is the enduring effect of, of, of war and, and combat, which America was about to, you know, re-experience, you know, big time, and we, and we still are. So it seems like not only on the individual, the impact on the individual, but on the family relationships and the community relationships and the relationships between the countries. What did you decide to do with the flag? Well, I ultimately decided to um, try and see if I could find the the family of this soldier. And it took, um, this was pre-computer and pre-internet, so it took about five years. And with the help of um, someone in the New York Times travel section, kind of directed me towards the right uh, office in the Japanese government. And we were finally able to find the family. And in 1995, in April, um, my husband and I went to... Um, this little town in the snow country of Japan to return the the flag, and it was uh, one of the most emotional experiences of my life. Really, quite a quite a remarkable experience. And so, I hadn't thought about that when I heard you talking about it before. That the internet didn't exist. Did you sort of put on your Sherlock Holmes hat and think, "All right, how do I make this connection?" Yeah, I mean, it made it seem very, very unlikely. And the name on the flag, which was Yoshio Shimizu, was a very common name. It was like Mike Smith, you know. And um, so the Jap the government had to go through all these records. But signed with the name were all the names of the friends of this young soldier. He turned out to have been um, 19 when he went to war, 21 when he died in that battle that my father fought in in the Philippines. And when I did go to this town, I met his friends, his siblings, his nieces and nephews. So they had to zero in on the community where those names um, still existed. And and I also got lucky because uh, there certainly would have been families in Japan that would not have been 
so pleased, I think, to meet the daughter of an American veteran. I couldn't tell them exactly where the flag came from. Uh, my father, it seemed like he really regretted picking it up. He, he said he regretted it five different times. It was such a stupid thing to do. Um, but I couldn't tell them for sure, and in a way I was, I was relieved that I couldn't. And so we're going to take a short break. This is Ellie Newman. You're listening to It's Relationship. I'm here with Louise Steinman. And we'll take a short break. Be back in just a moment. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on It's Relationship. I'm here with Louise Steinman, author and literary curator of Aloud in Los Angeles, author of three books. Are there just three, Louise? I know I had just missed three. it. Um, so... You, you wrote the first book. What led you then to jump back in, because it's an enormous undertaking, and write The Crooked Mirror? I, that's, a, that's a good question, because it, it is an enormous undertaking, and you really want it to be something that you... Um, no, I was just saying that, that it, 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 really, it, it does take such a long time that it really has to be something that I think you're quite passionate about. And the crooked mirror kind of began. I would say I was kind of a reluctant. I was kind of reluctantly pulled into it. I had a um, a Zen rabbi, uh, kind of wonderful, eccentric, and very loving figure here in Los Angeles, who for five years had been the officiating rabbi at something called the Bearing Witness Retreat at Auschwitz Birkenau, and he would talk about it sometimes on Friday nights and talk about this idea of Polish Jewish reconciliation. And I thought it was. I just couldn't understand what he was talking about. I certainly didn't want to go to this retreat, um, but it was it was curious. And, and I mean, because, I, was that because it seemed pointless or unimportant or or not something that was vital in that age, or something you just well, didn't have, feel a connection to? Well, two things. I said that the the idea of the retreat kind of frightened me. I mean, the idea of I mean, I did have this intense relationship to um, that Eastern, I mean, always been drawn to Eastern European history and to that part of my family story, but the idea of meditating on the train tracks at Auschwitz sounded really um, more than one could bear, and the idea of Polish-Jewish reconciliation, I guess, didn't resonate with me because I was raised in a, in a household where um, my mother could barely say the word Poland. I mean, she had... She conveyed such bitterness. Um, I knew that family had been lost there, and I think after a while, yeah, I think both of your parents Polish. No, my Polish father was born in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother's family was from Poland, but they had left before uh, World War II, long before, and yet they—I didn't know who they had left behind, and it was very indistinct. There was family lost. Well, who? What were their names? Um, I was curious, but didn't, again, didn't know how to find out. So the idea—I mean, I think. As for many um, American Jews, the idea of Poland kind of resonated a certain kind of anguish that um, it didn't for other Americans. And I think the place of where the cataclysm happened kind of became the cataclysm itself. And um, there was a, there was a great um, great prejudice, I think, against Poland and, and, and Poles, from whom we hadn't heard from in many years, of course, because of communism, and there hadn't been, as there was in West Germany, a discussion of what had happened in Poland after the war. And, and through your research, did you get a sense of what pre-war Poland was like and how drastically it changed or didn't change during the war? 
Yes, I did. Of course, there was interwar Poland, which was a, a whole interesting subject in itself. And then there was, um, you know, it, it depends on which period you looked at. Polish Jewish history is really complicated. Um, in fact, someone told me when I was embarking on this, who'd been a New Yorker correspondent in Poland, he went like, "Boy, if you're if you're going to open that, you know, Pandora's box, you know, w watch out." But what was the great key for me was I found, and of course this was just the beginning of the internet, um, I'd always thought that the little town where my family came from was just some little mud puddle. Um, it had a funny name, Radomsko, Radomsko. And um, there was a memory book. When I Googled it, uh, there was a, a book, there was a 600-page memory book about the town. And... This astonished me because I didn't know that there was so much that could be known. Of course, this book had been written in um, Yiddish, so it was just beginning to be translated. That was that was the big change: is that people were starting to translate these memory books that had been assembled uh, after World War II. So I could find out a lot about the town. So I'm I'm going to go off track for just a minute because I'm thinking at the beginning you said one of the impetuses for writing this was to sort of understand your upbringing and and um, the factors that were at play there. I'm wondering when you found out about the memorial book, did it change at all your thought or perspective on your mother's actions as you were growing up, or did you wish that she had been able to to see it and read, or, or were you glad that she didn't? No, I think it would have changed hers as well because it, it gives you, you know, there was this beautiful image in the book where um, there was this beautiful synagogue in the town and, of course, there was still a beautiful cathedral. And I, I learned that it was a Catholic who had painted those beautiful uh, paintings on the ceiling of the synagogue, the, the zodiac and the and the evening with the stars, and that it had been a Jewish tinsmith who had roofed the Catholic Church. And I got the sense in this town, which was maybe 25,000 people, people really lived their lives shoulder to shoulder. That it was, you know, you these were your neighbors. Um, it, was it was intertwined. You, um, yes, there was a Jewish section, but people, it was too small a town not to not to mingle, not to be, not to be mixed. And it start, it's, it's almost as if this black and white image in my mind sort of started to morph into, into color. I started to get a more nuanced um, picture of what life in this town might have been like. And do you get a sense that that was an anomaly? I mean, in a way, it's unimportant in that it shows it could happen and exist, which is encouraging. But is your sense that this was very different than what was happening in the rest of Poland? In the larger towns, I think there were there were things like this. Um, I, I think this was true in in towns all over Poland, and of course, it depended if you were if you spoke Polish. Of course, you were more easily you had and you had Polish friends. This made a huge difference. Not all Jews did. Um, sometimes they very much kept in their own communities. But as I began to interview survivors from the town, of course, their survival stories. Anyone who survived, often it was because they had Polish friends who um, had gone to great lengths to protect them. And it was very important to me. I, wanted, I also wanted to speak to find a rescuer in the town because in this, I think the bitterness after the war was so great. I think there's a great writer, Eva Hoffman, who was a great influence on my writing of this book. And it's like it took many people to save one Jew. But it only took one person to betray. 
So I think those those instances of betrayal are are were they were so traumatic. I think they almost overshadowed the instances. And of course, it wasn't everyone who went to that great length, but. Those people, of course, even after World War II under communism, could not be celebrated, which to me was very counterintuitive. I just could not understand why. So I want to talk a little bit about your personal journey, because that also was immense. I mean, you've, you've taken nine trips in the last ten years. That is very consuming, physically and emotionally. Your husband made the first trip with you. How has it affected this journey, both internally and externally, affected your relationships with your family and, and existing friends? And then later we'll talk about the friends that you've made on the journey. Well, in the very beginning, the, the, the Buddhists um, suggested assembling a mala, which is like a, a little strand of beads, and they said, you know, ask friends to support you on this first journey. I mean, it didn't, the retreat wasn't that expensive, but um, in a way to help support you. And, and people were very willing to, and I, I felt that circle of support, I think, all the way along. Um, my family was perhaps at first skeptical I mean, my one surviving uncle was like, you know, you need to go to Poland like you need a hole in the head. He could <laughs> understand. But as I began to find out more information about our family, people were intrigued. My brother, when he went to a medical conference in Poland, um, also went to the town. I don't think he knew what he was looking for, but um, that was the question. It's like, once you're there, what are you looking for? What What is it possible to find? But my husband was a great support um, all all the way through on this, and and someone who could read the manuscript and and talk to me about things. But I also found guides and helpers along the way. I mean, Polish guides and helper. I I, I couldn't have done it without. Well, so it seemed like one of the main thing, and I could be completely off base, but from listening to your lecture, the thing that you were looking for was some sense of either the possibility of or the evidence of reconciliation and mending. Absolutely. And what it, what would that look like? I mean, I, I began to become aware of how I, I made this trip with, with a woman, um, a couple of trips, who was a Holocaust survivor's daughter, and I am, I am not, who would ask people, like, do you miss us? You know, sometimes it was a very inconvenient question. Some people did, some people didn't, some people hadn't grown up with any Jews and they couldn't. But one person said it felt like there was a hole, you know, a hole ripped out of the rug. You could always feel that there was this piece missing because Jews were part of the heart and soul of Poland and their their fates were really entwined. So there were I was very interested in Poles and especially Poles who came out of um, the tradition of theater who were starting to create uh, rituals and ways of making an absence palpable. How do you make people aware of what isn't there? Like, you know, that could be true in, in, in this country with our Native American population. Like, it's, it's here, it, it was here, but how, do we be, how, do we, how are we aware of what wasn't there? What if, you know, half of the population of L.A., um, you know, were, were annihilated? How would we honor that um, in the decades to come? So that was part of the question. And there were some very interesting resolutions um, of that question in Poland. One of the people that you met along the way was Tomasz, and he seemed to answer that in a visual and, and physical manner. Will you talk a little bit about what he produced? 
Um, the, there's two tomages. Do you mean the my tomage of the guide or the theater director? I was talking about the theater director, but we'd love to hear about tomage your guide yeah. as well. Well, the first the first guide tomage um, my guide was was quite amazing because he'd grown up in the town of Osventum, which is the town of Auschwitz, which it seemed so horrifying to me. He would say it's a town like any other, and it was like. How can that be? But he was getting uh, he was getting a PhD in Jewish studies at the Yagalonian University, and is probably knows about more about Jewish history than anyone I know. Uh, the other Tomaj who was remarkable is a theater director who was creating these spectacles in his town. He his comp his little company. So let me just explain that in in Poland. Dissident theater was was quite a tradition under communism, and then after communism ended, these these dissident theater directors were like, well, dissident against what? They they refocused, and part of their focus was on looking at uh, Jewish history, lost Jewish history in their country. So Tomasz uh, Pietrasiewicz in this eastern uh, Polish town of Lublin, his company literally inhabited this. Um, it's called the gate, the gate to the town, the Grodzka gate. And it was the dividing line between the Christian side of the town and the Jewish side of the town. And little by little, they realized that what they looked out on, which was now a giant parking lot, which the communists had paved, you know, paved over the ruins of the German bombing, had been the Jewish neighborhood of Lublin. So they started to literally uncover this, this Jewish history, and they're very, very dedicated to it. And they've made some remarkable... Um, theater pieces, experiences, spectacles, where people encounter the Jewish presence of the town through voices and through and through visuals, and also they're really um, collecting. There's a tradition in Jewish history called uh, being a zamler. The Jewish historians of the early 20th century said, "Collect everything." You know, they had the sense that that there could be a disaster in the offing, so collect ephemera, collect letters. We talked about letters earlier. So the people in Lublin are literally trying to recreate the names, the presences of all those people um, who were annihilated in their in their town. It's it's a very big undertaking. And, and how, what's your impression of how he was received, or in general, sort of the your impression through those visits of those who want to remember and reconnect, and those that maybe from guilt or, or a feeling of of a lack of control or any other sort of strong emotion don't want that don't want to keep going back. I think there's that's a, a great debate in Poland. I, I think for now the progressive forces are winning, the progressive forces that do want to look look at that history. Um, and as one activist told me, I mean that's what you do in a in a peaceful time. This is when you look at the painful past. And when um, Jan Thomas Tomasz Gross's book called Neighbors came out, which talked about a massacre by Poles of their Jewish neighbors in a uh, town in, um, called Yedwabny. It engendered a huge discussion in Poland. And, and I think one has to remember that for many Poles, this was the first time they looked at their own complicity because under communism, you could neither honor the people who had risked their lives to save Jews. Um, you couldn't talk about the resistance so, nor could you talk about these other shameful, this shameful part of the past. So, it was really the beginning. They were really starting to have this discussion. And I think over the 10 years I was going, I was able to witness the kind of um, 
you know, this, the growth and the development of this discussion, and I found that very, very interesting in a way that, you know, here we are in America, I feel like we're just beginning to have a discussion, you know, or have we started about the legacy of slavery in our country, and that look how long ago that was. And do you feel like not being the child of Holocaust survivors, did that give you um, any sense during your journey or did you get the reception from anyone, you know, sort of, who am I to write this? I, I didn't really live through it. My relatives didn't really live through it in the same way. Or, or the opposite, that I'm the perfect person to write this because I'm well, in between all of the varying players. Well, as one kind of informant on this, on this journey told me, any American Jew who doesn't think they lost family in the Holocaust probably just doesn't know. Um, I did find who was... Uh, deported from my family. There was my grandmother left um, siblings behind and their entire extended family uh, was wiped out. No, it wasn't someone that I was close with, but to be able to give this person a name, um, to be able to find the house where she had lived in, in the town. So in that sense, um, I, I, I learned my connection to that history. I found my great-grandmother's grave in the town. I I gave myself a sense of the past that I that I really didn't have before because no one, this place had no reality to me. On the other hand, I think I was cushioned in a way, um, not that there wasn't, um, you know, difficulty in, in seeing some of these places or facing some of these truths, but my friend Cheryl, who traveled with me, who was a survivor's daughter, we did go to her um, family's town, in, which is now in Ukraine, and it was it was devastating. I I um I don't think that she was the the preparation was deep enough. The welcome wasn't strong enough, and I think it was quite a psychological. Um, it was it was like opening up the wound. I mean, we were standing on the spot where her grandfather had been burned alive in a synagogue. We were in the woods where her aunts had been and grandmother had been shot by the Germans, and um, it it was it was. It was really, really um, traumatic for her, and, and she had to kind of stop her involvement with the project. Well, then even during your lecture here in Sun Valley um, last month, I was moved and surprised by, you know, here we are, a tiny town, uh, um, and there were members of the audience who were very moved by your lecture, and I think having had maybe a different experience in their personal lives, a reaction to you having such a positive and optimistic outlook on the relationships going forward. And, and is that something you often receive? Yes, yes, yes it is. And I understand that in a, in a certain way. Um, I encountered that also with a souvenir, a lot of suspicion, especially from people who had actually experienced, you know, being in the Pacific War. And that's why when I talk about how reconciliation often falls to the next generation. I think if you've been the recipient of that kind of trauma, I mean, if you if you can if you can enter the path of reconciliation and I have met people who could. I mean, I have met survivors at the Auschwitz retreat, you know, who were willing to be there um, and talk about it and be with people who were, you know, talk across this great divide. But I wouldn't expect it, and I, I, I'm not surprised by that reaction. But we are in 2015. Um, Poland is a, a democratic state. It's, it's making great efforts to look at its own history. And I think the rewards of 
looking at history together of what we can regain is, is, so, po is so positive and, and so reinvigorating that that's why, um, to me, it's worth making that effort. The, the huge new museum of the history of Polish Jews just opened in Warsaw. It's a thousand years of Jewish history in Poland. And I think to discard that, to not look at the, the whole history, um, is, is a great loss. And, and, and we, there's so much to be regained there. And not without, not without difficulty, I agree. Well, and you certainly have um, taken on a great deal of difficulty. It's brought you a lot of, of joy, I think, along the way. But 10 years of, of these trips and writing two books, do you feel like the chapter's closed? Is there, a, is there another book coming? Um, that's, that's the $64,000 question in my, yes, there will be another book that its subject matter is, is, uh, still, uh, being, being investigated right now. I'm writing closer, closer to home, but I do, I did tour Poland, um, this past spring. And that was the question I asked myself, you know, am I done with Poland? Is Poland done with me? Um, it was such a joyful, uh, trip and I, I, I have such a community there now that I wouldn't have anticipated, um, being a part of that, um, I know I will always have a special connection to that place. And, and Louise, does the question remain the same, whether it is focused on Poland or Eastern Europe or, or focused on, on America, uh, how to move people away from prejudice and into a positive position? Is that I think that will always be a big question for me. Um, there are many questions to ask, um, but that those have certainly been the motivating ones that have pushed me forward through time and and um, I hope that the, the call to the next project will become apparent to me. You said you don't choose your stories, your, your stories choose you, um, but you might a little bit choose your, your topic matter or, or what pokes you, right? Might has to be connected with who you are as an individual or your life experience or your values. Yeah, and also what what you're you know I wouldn't have predicted that I would actually be able to make all those trips to Poland, and there were many times I didn't think I would see it through. So I mean I know how hard, I know how hard it is. I'm not um, kind of naive about that anymore, and uh, and I want to look. I do want to look closer to home. So I, I that's certainly one. You know I'm, I I want to write about Los Angeles right now. I want to write about what I'm seeing here. Um, but we'll see where that we'll see where that goes. And I know there was a little discussion about whether the Crooked Mirror was a memoir or a, a history book, and of course it's it's a combination of both. But having finished it and and now maybe moving on to the next thing, when you look back at it, how does it resonate for you? I I really think of it definitely as a memoir because um, it's my you know when I you talked about that reaction that some people have you know to to the book you know the skepticism um, or that I'm so positive and what I'm trying to show and that's why dreams are a big part of it and 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 images is that this is my psychological process this is what it took for me to move from through these psychological states. I mean, this is, I didn't start with an open mind towards Poland. This is, this is a process, and I feel like what the, the arc of the book is, and this was true of the souvenir as well, is that the character is moving in this direction, and it takes a lot. It takes encounters, it takes um, psychological work, it's, it's dream work. I mean, my dream life changed, and, and, and that 
that really is is a is a part of it. It's not, you know, I I used to feel like, oh, if only I could have gotten a book contract from the very beginning, you know, and it would have supported this work. But in a way, I don't. I couldn't have written either of these two books in a year and a half. They took as long as they took, you know, for a reason because I kind of had to live through the experience. I just don't think there was another way. Damn it. <laughs> well, no, because I'm just sitting here thinking it's neither an all a memoir or a history piece. It's a theater piece. Well, it's a gesture in the world. That's that's a, I, I appreciate that. It, 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 yeah, it's, it's a 10 year performance. <laughs> it is a 10 year performance. And yeah. what better way to connect and share and show people possibility and give them hope than that? Well, I thank you for your response and your and your insight, Ellie. I, I really do. And your interest. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And, and I can't wait to interview you again in one, two, three, or ten years on, on your next book. Thank you so much, Ellie. Really appreciate it. Okay. This is Bye-bye. KDPI 89.1 FM Ketchum. For all my people. So when World War Three starts, I can look back and know what I was thinking. I was thinking, wouldn't it be nice if I could have all the people?